0: Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF.
1: Strap on your parachute, it's time for What Goes Up with Sarah Ponzik and Mike Regan.
2: Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Poncek, a reporter on the Cross Asset Team.
3: And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg.
2: This week on the show, News of a vaccine has ignited a rotation in markets. For evidence, some stats. As of midday Tuesday, the S&P 500 energy sector was already up 37% in November, which would be the best month on record. Financials are in the midst of their best month since 2009. The Russell 2000, or small caps, is also on track for its best month in history, up 20%. But still, our guest says the news of a vaccine does not change anything about the types of companies he owns. The fund he manages is in the 99th percentile year to date according to Bloomberg data and over the last year three years and five years so he'll explain why
3: and as always we will close out the episode with our tradition or gimmick if you would prefer to call it (laughs) the craziest thing I saw in markets this week uh sorry you came prepared I trust
2: I did come prepared I'd argue though it's not a gimmick Mike it's a tradition this is a real true tradition
3: tradition Just like uh, mashed potatoes and turkey on on Thanksgiving. Exactly. Are you a turkey eater? Something tells me you're like a vegetarian or something.
2: No, Thanksgiving is my favorite meal of the year, Mike. It is? Okay. I do have a vegan brother, which is maybe why you think that. But no, Thanksgiving, I I could eat Thanksgiving dinner every single night of the year.
3: I could too, yeah. I have a a daughter who is a a newly minted vegetarian, so it's a little challenging this year because I, I noticed that... Even my vegetable dishes have meat in them, like yep. the, the Bacon. Uh, Brussels Bacon sprouts and green with beans. pancetta. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a tough one. But anyway, uh, as you said, this week's guest, really uh, phenomenal performance from the Invesco Global Focus Strategy Fund. Uh, as you mentioned, Sarah, up 46, closing in on a 50% year-to-date gain for that fund. Top one percentile uh, of similar funds. His name is Randy Dishman. Uh, Randy, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. Glad to be here.
3: So Randy, I, you know, I'm looking at the holdings of your fund and a, a lot of sort of internet, big tech. I think what this year uh, sort of got shorthanded is some of the stay at home names, which I know is not what you had in mind when you you probably picked them out. But talk to us about this whole buzz in the markets, about a rotation out of sort of the the big growth, the real high flying stocks that we've seen over the last few years, the Facebooks and Googles of the world and into more value-oriented stocks and small caps. Is this keeping you up at night, this rotation, or do do you think it's just a flash in the
1: pan? No, it's not keeping me up at night. I mean, I've I've been an Oppenheimer now in Vesco for 20 years, and it's not the first time I've seen this kind of thing. But, you know, everyone's getting excited about maybe the end of COVID because of a vaccine, but the truth is the economy's been substantially better than most people realize and even if we do get back out of our houses, which seems kind of strange right now, uh, it's not going to change the, the structural trends that were started, the ones that I've been looking at years ago. They've got really nothing to do with COVID uh, and will continue long after we stop talking about COVID.
2: Brandy, I want to circle back a little bit. You spoke with one of my colleagues, Vildana Heyrich, who's also Mike and I. Uh, she's our Crazy Things correspondent. We like to call her on this show. But you spoke earlier this year, and I wanted to read a quote uh, from the story that she wrote from your conversation. And you said, I've heard bubble used to describe it, that's laughably incorrect. I've heard popular momentum trade, laughably incorrect. And then you went on to say, people look at tech and they see what they think are high valuations, but they don't fully understand what's going on structurally. Can you walk us through what that structural change actually is and how that maybe has been affected or or unaffected um, from what we've seen and experienced in 2020 during COVID?
1: Sure, so uh, you know, I look at the world and try to figure out what's changing structurally. And, and the difference I mean, to be a good investor, you really have to understand the difference between cyclical and structural because people talk about growth and value all the time, and that's the current narrative. But, you know, if the underlying phenomenon is structural, structural doesn't separate the world into growth and value. That's what cyclical does. But if, if the underlying phenomenon is structural, structural separates the world into winners and losers, and losers go bankrupt, you know, for instance, E-commerce, the rise of e-commerce and and the move to digital is not cyclical. It's not like you and I are going to use Amazon for three years and go, hey, you know what? That was pretty cool. Let's go back to the store for the next three years. Cyclical is, you know, I wear blue things in my wardrobe this year and orange things (laughs) next year. I mean, we all know the difference. But as an investor, you have to really look to see what that difference is. You know, you can't really have a discussion about valuation without an understanding of what's going on. And the fundamentals of the move to the cloud and the fundamentals of e-commerce are off the chart phenomenal, more than justify the valuation. And when these growth rates continue for another couple of years, the valuation gets swamped. I would say most of what I own today is fairly attractive on a two and three year basis, which is all I care about.
3: Yeah, Randy, is it possible, though, that the the sort of trends we've seen this year have pulled forward some of the returns of, of the sort of internet and growth stocks and, and that they could be sort of in for sort of middling weaker returns in, in 2021 or even the rest of the, this year? And, and um, you know, I don't know whether you agree with that or not, but if so, would that sort of cause you to to adjust your portfolio at all? Or are you just kind of a, a, the guy that would buy and hold and sort of just bear, you know, bear through those, those weaker quarters if they, if they are uh, in store for us?
1: Well, you used the word growth stock, I believe. You didn't say tech. So you, you asked me about growth stocks, correct?
3: Well, uh, maybe answer growth and for tech. <laughs>
1: okay, sure. So, so the people that know me know that in general, I hate labels like that. You know, a growth stock is what something that has a high P.E., something that's growing. I I don't really know. You know, if, if you're talking about Morningstar, you're talking about very quantitative metrics on what a growth stock is. If you're talking about what most people think about, they're thinking about high growth. You know, I don't buy anything because of a label. I buy things that, you know, let me put it this way. Every great investment ever made in history, regardless of what you called it, growth, value, large, small, domestic, international, started with one thing in common, buying something for less than it's worth. And so that's all that matters. You pay something, you get something in return. And so I look at companies and figure out what the fundamentals warrant. And, you know, to your point, Perhaps some demand has been pulled forward in certain areas. But when I was talking to to CEOs about the cloud six months ago, eight months ago, they were talking about it as, well, it's a nice to have, but it's not a must have. And so we'll get there over the next five to seven years. When I was talking to CEOs in the depths of COVID, their response was quite different. It was, if I don't get to the cloud tomorrow, I don't have a business in a year. And so it pulled forward some demand. But this is structural. It's not cyclical. It's going to continue. It was happening before COVID started. It was happening during COVID. And it's going to continue to happen after COVID. Those are the kinds of investments I look for.
2: So with that said, has 2020 and everything we've been through this year, I mean, granted not over yet, Has this at all changed your view on companies that have the most leeway for structural growth going forwards? Have you made tweaks to your portfolios? Is there something that you've seen as a a true change at all, whether that mean adding um, new companies or industries and and detracting from others or the opposite? um, Anything at all?
1: In a lot of ways, not really. You know, I was One part of being a good investor is to be fully prepared to act with conviction when the market makes mistakes. And so much of this job is, you know, most people that have been doing this a long time and, and doing it well, read five, six hours a day over over decades. And so, you know, you're going to be prepared when the market makes mistakes. Back in March, the market made some fairly large mistakes, some of the biggest I've seen in my career and I was able to take advantage of those. In many cases, it was things that I already owned. In a few cases, I was able to add some companies that I'd wanted to own at a better price for a long time, and the market mistakenly threw everything out at once, and I was able to do that. And so I haven't really changed much in terms of the names and the composition of the fund, which is not not unusual for me in times of stress, though I was very active and adding to the opportunities that I saw.
4: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
3: Hey, Randy, I was reading one of uh, your blog posts, and you sort of laid out some of the, the main themes that you've talked about, you know, m- the move to the cloud, uh, the rise of e-commerce, uh, diagnostics, and research. One bullet point you have in here I found uh, really interesting, and also it cracked me up a little bit. Let me just read a little bit from this post. You're talking about the electronification of money. And you say, but you write basically that you expect that to continue. And you say, why? Ever look at money under a microscope? Don't. That's
2: <laughs> disgusting.
3: It's disgusting. I guess in the in a, in a newly germ uh, germophobic world, that, that that's a trend to accelerate. But, yeah, you know, so I'm looking through some of the um, big holdings, the top holdings in the focus fund. I see PayPal. That's kind of an obvious expression of, of that theme. Is there anything else that we're not seeing? You know, I, I think I'm only looking at the top holdings, though, but are there other sort of holdings that that express that theme of the electronification of money? And if and if you'll allow me to turn this into a three part question.
2: <laughs> he usually asks 12. 12, so yeah. Three I'm, is I'm, a good amount. I'm
3: taking it easy on you. Does cryptocurrencies play any role in that thinking? And given that theme is, is one of your top themes, I'm, I was kind of surprised not to see square in the portfolio, although maybe it's down lower in the in the lower weightings. But if it's not in the portfolio, something about square you don't like. And again, about the crypto, what's, what's your thinking on crypto?
1: Okay. So so when it comes to the electronification of money, I don't think people see it for what it is. One, it started in the 1950s with the, the rise of the first credit cards. And back then, to get a credit card meant basically you didn't need one. You had to be wealthy to get a credit card. Right. Uh, and it was a, a true convenience, right? And then uh, in the 80s, about the time I was coming out of college, you could get a credit card, but socially what it implied was you couldn't afford what you were buying if you, if you used it. <laughs> uh, and, and so through my whole life, I've watched the, the social attitudes change around a credit card. In the late 90s and early 2000s, and, and I think – you know, you can identify with this, is you would use a credit card. There was no social stigma around you couldn't afford what you were buying, but you still only used it for large purchases. And nowadays, the social attitude is, it's back to being a true convenience. People will now go into a convenience store, buy a bottle of water and a bag of potato chips on a credit card and think nothing of it. But 10 years ago, you wouldn't have done that. And so, it's become a convenience item in your life. You don't have to carry money. COVID comes along and just reminds you that money is one, of the, is one of the biggest common touch points in your life. Money's filthy. We just got lucky on that one. But social attitudes around credit cards have been changing literally for 60 years. And we're still only about 50% penetrated globally in terms of all purchases. You asked about, you know, so I own MasterCard as part of that. And I have for quite a while. But you asked about crypto. I, I've looked at crypto and for the life of me, I can't figure out what the purpose is. What is it that you want to do with crypto that you can't already do? The one thing I, I can do with crypto that I can't already do is hide. And, you know. <laughs> Hiding suggests something to me that I might not want to be part of as an investor. Uh, I'll leave it at that. (laughs) And you asked about Square as well. Square, I looked at Square. I knew Square had a great product. This is years ago. I knew Square had a nice business model. I knew it would take the long tail. And I made a mistake in not buying it. Uh, I thought the valuation was a bit rich. I thought there was little technology in its platform that it could hold on to from a from the standpoint of advantage. And turns out the first mover advantage was enough. And so I missed it.
3: Sorry, I think he's the first one to answer every part of a multi prong question like that. That was pretty good.
2: I think I might agree with that too. Congratulations. <laughs> you deserve a, a pat on the back. <laughs> I want to I want to run through a, a couple more of your top holdings there, Randy, and then kind of dig a little bit deeper into this idea of the rotation that a lot of sell side strategists are at least calling for. So if I look at some of your top holdings on uh, your funds fact sheet, Facebook, Twilio, Salesforce, ServiceNow, CrowdStrike, I'd say I, I, usually when I get and it's been often lately, sell-side strategist notes are just filled with this idea of a rotation. I won't even use style or I won't use these descriptions uh, or boxes, but just this idea that companies that have performed very well recently over the last couple of years, they're going to start underperforming areas of the market that just haven't performed quite as well. What is it, though, about the way that you see the world in in a structural way that you maybe don't believe that, a bank or an energy company is all of a sudden going to truly, for a long-term period, start to outrun, say, these five companies that I just listed?
1: Well, you know, the boxes that you're, that you're not talking about but talking about, I, I remember stepping up in front of a room full of people 12, 13 years ago when I first launched the fund. And I put those boxes up and I said, this is where money goes to die. And, and I stand by <laughs> what I said 13 years ago. Um, the world doesn't work that way and allocating that way has never made any sense to me. It's a great way to own too much, uh, too many things and, and to lock in underperformance. But but anyway, you know, cyclicals will rebound. I mean, you're already seeing it now, but that doesn't change the fundamentals. I'm talking about the difference between price action and and fundamentals. It's not surprising to me that some of these things are rebounding because many of them were priced for bankruptcy. But at the end of the day, you know, take energy. Energy's going against the trend. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that electric cars are going to continue to take percent of the fleet. Transportation is 25 plus percent of the energy usage in this country. GDP continues to be less energy intensive globally. It's not a place I would want to invest money under the best of circumstances. This is certainly not the best of circumstances. Might you get a bounce? Sure, you're already getting it. But, uh, you know, that's a trading kind of mindset that I think makes it very difficult to be a really great long-term investor. Uh, Some of the other things, financials, financials to me, the money center banks, particularly things like JP Morgan, Citigroup, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, I think post Dodd-Frank, their balance sheets are so gold-plated that it's very difficult to lose money in in those banks at these prices. I'm not saying it won't be dead money for a few years, But I find that situation interesting as an investor. And so I'll set those off to the side. Most of the other cyclical value type rotation things that you're talking about, I think are a waste of time. I think you might get a good short term trade in those things, but short term trading is, is a very difficult way to make real money. And whatever rotation is happening is definitely not changing the trends that I'm invested in right now.
0: Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
3: You know, uh, Randy, one thing I wanted to ask you, uh, the Global Focus Fund, as its name implies, is a global fund, pretty decent allocation to China, about 10 11%. I'm curious how all of the tensions between the U.S. and China over the recent years, uh, if they affected your uh, your buying at all, you know, were you were you restrained on sort of looking at Chinese stocks because of that? Or, you know, under a Biden administration, would you be inclined to look a little harder in China or does it does it not really matter that the whole trade war and geopolitical situation to you?
1: I appreciate that question. I get that question a lot. And my short answer would be total waste of time to even think about it. Uh, I've been through many elections as an investor. I've been through many pretty severe macro phenomenon, and I've not yet seen the one that mattered to long term outcomes. China, to me, I recognized 15 years ago is a phenomenon that I'm unlikely to see again in my lifetime. A, A country... At that scale, coming out into the modern world from emerging to developed, there are other countries that will do that. There aren't any other countries left that will do it at that scale. And, you know, the advantage that China had, you think about something like Amazon. For Amazon to become Amazon, it had competitors, thousands of competitors that had a 100 year head start. They had the best real estate. They had four generations of customer relations that they could use against you. Amazon had to bankrupt 20,000 different companies just to become Amazon. Mm -hmm. Alibaba was competing with nothing. Alibaba, you know, there was no organized retail in China prior. And so Alibaba could become Alibaba quite quickly. I knew that China would happen faster than the analogs people look to in the United States. And so... It was just a matter of going there, figuring out who the winners were, what advantages were necessary to win, obviously, and then finding them. And uh, it wasn't really that difficult. I continue to be impressed by what they're able to do and how relevant they are globally. Most of the political noise is just that noise, and it doesn't really affect the outcome.
2: So another question that maybe fits into this bucket, uh, Alibaba, also one of your top holdings, the regulatory front. There's been a lot of talk lately about regulation over in China for big tech companies, also here in the U.S., Uh, Facebook being one of your top holdings. Of course, there's a lot of talk about Facebook and other big tech companies facing uh, antitrust concerns here in the U.S. Does that at all concern you?
1: No. And it's not for lack of thinking about it and for lack of looking. One of the best things you could do to Facebook from an investment point of view would be to break it up. Most people don't really look at and understand Instagram for what it is. Instagram is one of the best e-commerce and advertising assets ever created and will definitely at some point be as big as core Facebook and could even be bigger uh, because of the e-commerce aspect of it. Digital advertising, you know, one of the things that people aren't looking at when they talk about the recovery post-COVID is they talk about the rotation back into brick and mortar retail and airlines and, and carnival cruises and things like that. Things that have historically through the cycle been terrible investments and this time won't be any different, but all of that comes with advertising and digital continues to take share. And and one of the things that COVID did induce was trial. If you were someone who weren't advertising uh, primarily on digital, you had no choice during COVID but to do that. And every time I've seen advertisers adopt digital, they don't go back. Their the return on investment for every digital dollar spent is so much greater than everything else they could, they could do with that dollar. They don't go back. And so Facebook, Instagram, Google are all natural beneficiaries of a return to a more normalized environment.
3: Hey, Randy, one of your themes uh, you talk about is diagnostics and research. Um, I'm curious what's uh, what you're seeing there. That's exciting, and where do you see that space going? I mean, um, this is obviously a trend that predates COVID. Got quite a shot in the arm from COVID, but where do you see you know what's exciting you in that space? Any any stocks we don't know about, um, and and where do you see that going in the future?
1: Well. You know, diagnostics is something that me and my and colleagues internally were talking about 17, 18 years ago. I, I met Illumina, one of my larger holdings, for the first time in 2003 and sat on a banker's box in the parking lot of the building that the founder was in the process of moving into. He told me <laughs> he told me the advantage that he had, how things were going to play out for the company and everything that he said was absolutely correct. You know, the rise of point-of-care diagnostics has been going on for 25 years. And so, you know, I own two foundational platform assets in Illumina and Thermo Fisher that if you're doing research and development in, in the healthcare space, you're highly likely, and, and this is globally, you're highly likely to be a customer of one or both of those companies. Uh, they are the de facto standards in diagnostics research and in research automation. And so the things that have started years ago, you know, imagine and if you're old enough, remember what it was like to get a a test 20 years ago. You could wait three weeks for a result and, and the doctor's office couldn't do it. Nowadays, you can get the test done at your doctor's office and you can have many times results before you can make it to the parking lot. Uh, that's where medicine is going. That's where diagnostics is going. And those two assets are critical in taking it there. The, you know, it used to be they were necessary, but they weren't leading it there. Now they're driving. And uh, that's where it's headed. And it's going to play out over the next 10, 15 years. Uh, and there's no way to avoid those two, those two companies
2: it really is amazing and uh rewinding a little bit to your point on e-commerce and instagram i have a bit of a crazy story before we get to sharing our crazy things uh just the other day so i'm I'm in michigan for the holiday uh, we we ran into a golf store and i just got a puppy randy and we were joking around they have all those animal uh, heads that you can stick on um your driver as a cover and we were joking around we needed to get one that looked like our, our puppy for uh, the golf clubs. And next thing I knew, a couple hours later, I went on Instagram and what did I get an advertisement for? Cloning your dogs for a driver head. And I was like, okay, coincidence or not, but that is a little bit too specific. And uh, I'm just gonna say these driver dog head clones were honestly a little bit too creepy. Like it looks like your actual dog was sitting on top of your golf club. Um, That's a a little crazy. right, now, but what did you
3: shoot, Sarah? That's the real question.
2: What did I, oh, what did I shoot? Oh, I didn't, I didn't actually golf. We just went to pick out some shoes.
3: Oh, you just like the fashion. You just, I know,
2: I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that good. Don't, don't (laughs) worry. (laughs) I don't get to play that often in New York City. Um, but, (laughs) but I do enjoy it.
3: (laughs) I like the, the Michigan reference there. I know now why you booked Randy, another, another Michigan, uh, NBA there. Uh, we'll allow it. Hey, you guys have the same, Football helmets is my Delaware Blue Hens, so I will I will allow I will allow the Michigan love to some degree.
2: I don't think either of us uh, want to openly speak about Michigan football at this point in time, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> All
3: right. Well, no basketball season, so it's going to be a long. I'm more. excited. Uh, anyway, I think that is our segue, if I'm not mistaken. You are not. All right. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. You know, I'll I'll kick it off. For once, I'll kick it off. Two crazy things I wanted to bring up, Sarah. One was this last week we, as you wrote about, Tesla getting added to the S and P five hundred finally. So naturally, you would assume that would cause a rally, a little bit of a pop in Tesla. What's amazing to me is the short covering rally it caused in all these Tesla-like companies, like Blink Charging, Fuel Cell Energy. I don't know how to pronounce this one. row, tickers A-Y-R-O. They're all up like in the hundreds of percent since Tesla was added. And the thinking is that it just caused a massive cover. I think the Biden presidency is is somewhat bullish for for green energy as well. Uh, so that's one of them. But here's my real crazy thing. British Airways. Have you ever flown on British Air?
2: I don't well, think so.
3: Lovely airline. And they're, I've never flown first class on them, but apparently their first class service is, is to die for. They've had so few flights that they're just selling off all the gear from first class. So you can buy like the champagne flutes, the the fine china, the slippers. You can even buy those heated boxes that they bring your meals around in, which I kinda want one of them. The the heated the heated What no it keeps box. it warm? Yeah. Yeah, those okay. the things that keep the So in the spirit of prices right, Sarah, what and, and Randy, what would you guys pay for a British Air first class blanket?
2: Just the pounds? blanket.
3: Just we're pounds. Not, we're not
2: talking the meal box or the champagne nope. flute. Just, just the. the you could buy. Uh,
3: British Air says you can buy it all and recreate the first class experience in your living room when you're stuck at home. Which, uh, which I, I don't know. I don't know if anybody in the world will do that. Someone's bound to do that, though. I, I, I guess. But.
1: Uh, yeah, I'd pay zero. I've done too many miles in British Airways first <laughs> class globally, so I, no novelty you, there you're for not- me.
3: You're not looking to recreate the uh, (laughs) the flying experience.
2: I mean, if if you're bringing this up for prices right, it's got to be something that's a bit ridiculous and you wouldn't normally pay for a blanket. Uh, I'm going to go. I'll go 300, Mike. 300? I might buy and one. I, and, I wouldn't. I wouldn't pay three hundred dollars for a blanket, but you never know.
3: I'm gonna buy one and resell to you. Only nine pounds for for the British Air blanket.
2: Oh, see, you, you tricked me again. I was thinking that it's got to be something ridiculous <laughs> if, if you're bringing it on the show.
3: <laughs> you can get the slippers for ten pounds, which uh, ah, may be more. That ridiculous. is ridiculous. Yeah, probably.
2: <laughs> <laughs> which I think you can pretty much
3: walk off a flight with them normally, right? They don't. I don't think they. I uh, <laughs> don't think they frisk you for your slippers when you're, when you're getting off the flight. So, all right, Randy, what, how about you? Have you seen anything crazy this week?
1: You know, a colleague, me and a colleague, uh, one, of, one of my analysts uh, were just talking about a data point that I, I'm surprised people aren't talking more about. Existing home sales, one of, one of the best uh, leading indicators of spending because of the multiplier you know, effect when people buy a house at a 15-year high. Uh, the highest since 2005, and not only the highest since 2005, but double the peak in 2005. Now, if you have been around as long as I have, you remember 2005 was a crazy housing market. People were knocking down million-dollar houses and building $2 million houses. Uh, you had taxi drivers owning three properties in Florida. It was really a, an off-the-hook housing market. Existing home sales are twice that peak right now.
3: So, so, Randy, obviously, I mean, the low mortgage rates are a big part of that, right? And maybe a, a bottleneck of, of uh, you know, purchases that didn't go through during the pandemic. Or is it people moving out of the cities? What do you, you think is driving all this other than obviously the, the low rates?
1: Well, part of it's definitely COVID related. Um, and what my analyst thinks, and, and I think he's right is uh, there might be a new trend toward de-urbanization. You know, I remember thinking 20 years ago and looking at data 20 years ago that jobs were moving to the cities, people were moving to the cities, uh, and you could see urbanization in the numbers. I think you are now starting to see signs, and it's totally triggered by COVID, of de-urbanization. Uh, now, granted, it's technologically enabled. Uh, look at what we're doing right now; if we could be anywhere doing this, and I can do my job from anywhere. But it might be spreading a bit more broadly in the economy, and uh, you know that comes with positives and negatives. Sarah, that means that
3: means suburban dads like me are the coolest right now. Is that right?
1: It does. Yeah,
2: it's exactly what it means, Mike. We're going to to you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks.
3: That's my That's what I thought.
2: Yeah, yeah, obviously. Uh, I also wanted to ask you, Randy, after Mike brought up uh, the bit on Tesla and the electric vehicle market, because you are always looking for structural growers and almost companies of the future, what, what's your vision there?
1: Well, I, I looked at Tesla. And again, so back in 2004, I was co-managing a global fund with uh, one of my senior colleagues. And we were talking about electric vehicles back then. Uh, you know, 16 years ago, and we went around the world and looked at everything that had to do with an electric vehicle, every battery company, everywhere, the electric powertrain, every component, wherever you could find someone that had any input into electric vehicles, we looked at it and evaluated it because I only invest in what I consider to be advantaged companies. And so you have to be able to find the advantage. There's actually very little advantage to be had in the electric powertrain. It's mostly there's not a lot of intellectual property there. But Tesla, obviously a great design, obviously a a, a good company in terms of its product. What I didn't like about Tesla was the corporate governance. When uh, when the management team bailed out uh, the solar company using Tesla shareholder money, you know I I've got to get three things right. I've got to get Is the company worth owning ever right? And that's about advantage. And then I've got to get at what price is it worth owning right? And then the third thing I've got to get right is, are the people running this company running it for shareholders? Uh, That's where Tesla failed for me. And I chose not to buy Tesla. Uh, Some things just have to go up without you. But I do believe electric vehicles are going to continue to take share of the overall fleet.
3: All right, Sarah, what do you got?
2: All right, so in honor of uh, Thanksgiving, I wanted to do something that was food-related. And I'll say this does come from this past weekend, but did you see this story about this big cocoa trade from Hershey's?
3: I I did, yes, yes. So I'm just going to read you the
2: top. Yeah, I'm going to read you the top of this story. It just says, one of America's top chocolate makers is upending the New York cocoa market. Hershey is taking the unusual unusual step of directly sourcing a large amount of cocoa through the ICE Futures US exchange instead of buying beans in the physical market. Uh, and then it goes on to say, the massive trade has set December delivery futures to a record premium over the next contract and supposedly this purchase was so large that they required special permission from the exchange. If you look at this chart, it really is just, I mean, pun intended, off the charts. Uh, it's, it's It's pretty crazy.
3: It is that's an amazing story. I, I my favorite part of that story is apparently there's like uh, uh, OPEC type of cartel for for cocoa, which <laughs> which I was not aware of.
2: I mean, like personally, I'd rather be part of the chocolate cartel than the oil cartel. But <laughs> right, right. They also said chocolate demand
3: had been reduced during COVID. I don't see that at all. I would have thought it went through the roof. People stress They're it not. Me, but they're not at thought... our
2: households, Mike.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So, I don't know, Randy. I don't know if you've ever dabbled in cocoa futures. That that seems like a uh, a perilous market to me. Uh
1: only as a consumer, not as an investor. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think that's the right a good side to be on. <laughs> that's pretty Eat good. plenty of chocolate these days. Uh all right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. We want to wish a very happy Thanksgiving to all. I know it's past, but we really hope that you could enjoy it even in a year as strange as 2020. And uh, Randy Dishman, thank you so much for joining the podcast this week. It was a, a blast.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. Also, thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Jordan Gaspore. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
4: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state